0: Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and at IASLC.org in the newsroom. I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Liu. This is Dr. Stephen Liu, Director of Thoracic Oncology at Georgetown University. In this episode of Lung Cancer Considered, we will discuss the management of stage three non-small cell lung cancer. As we know, stage 3 lung cancer is extremely heterogeneous, and there are many roads that get us there. This includes large tumors with no lymph node involvement, small tumors with more extensive lymph node involvement, and many combinations in between. As a result, the management of stage 3 non-small cell lung cancer is extremely complex, involves multiple disciplines and several competing treatment strategies. This is also a space where we've seen some major shifts in treatment approach over the past few years. To discuss stage three non small cell lung cancer, I'm joined by two truly world renowned lung cancer experts. First, from Germany, we're joined by pulmonologist Dr. Martin Reck, head of the Department of Thoracic Oncology, head of the Clinical Trials Department at the Lung Clinic Grossendorf. Dr. Reck has led many of the oncology trials that have defined the standard of care for lung cancer, including Keynote 24. As uh, my co investigator in Empower 133, and more recent novel strategies specifically in stage three, uh, non small cell lung cancer, like Keynote 799. Martin, thank you for joining us today.
1: Thank you. Hello to everyone.
0: We're also joined by thoracic surgeon, Dr. Paolo Ugalde, an associate surgeon in the Division of Thoracic Surgery at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts. Dr. Ugalde has been a pioneer of minimally invasive surgery from her time as Director of Thoracic Oncology Research at Laval University in Quebec to her current position at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. She is a technically skilled surgeon, an innovator in technique, and a well-known mentor, educator, and advocate, truly an expert in the multidisciplinary management of stage 3 lung cancer. She's also a member of the Board of Directors of IASLC. Paula, thank you for joining us today.
2: Thank you, Stephen, for your kind words, and it's truly an honor to be here with you.
0: I mean, there's so much to to go through. Let's just jump right in. Let's start with establishing the proper stage. There are many instances where patients proceed with lung cancer treatment, like surgery, with the assumption that they have an earlier stage cancer and are only later found to have stage three disease after the fact. You know, we want to minimize this under staging, which leads to what we call an incidental stage three lung cancer and it's usually the result of not staging the mediastinum. You know, I see this skipped a lot in practice. And Martin, let's start with you. Someone has a known diagnosis of non-small cell lung cancer. If a PET scan and a CT scan are done and do not show suspicious regional lymph nodes, when is it still important to pursue invasive mediastinal staging?
1: Well, I think it's it's a bit uh, related to to the structure and the size of the lymph nodes. So even if there is a negative PET signal and you have an enlarged lymph node in the mediastinal space, I, I would do an eBOS just to be sure that this is a mediastinal negative tumor because there might be some mistakes by the PET scan and uh, I I would look on on the morphological, uh, configuration of the lymph node and to decide whether to go on for invasive mediastinal staging, yes or no.
0: Yeah, I agree. It's it's really in, in many cases not sensitive or specific enough, and a lot of times in practice, at least in my institution, we're doing endobronchial ultrasound to really confirm staging. There, uh, Paula EBUS has been such an important advance in staging. Can you talk about who performs EBUS? Is this done by pulmonologists by surgeons? And maybe can you talk a little bit about how other countries access this technology?
2: So, EBAs are performed both by thoracic surgeons and interventional pulmonologists. And I don't think that there is a, a difference between uh, those specialties in terms of quality of, or accuracy. What I truly believe is that when you're part of a multidisciplinary team, you understand the role of the procedure. Although EBUS is a minimally invasive procedure to perform both diagnosis and staging several times, we cannot forget or underestimate the importance of a full staging. If you're replacing... Uh, If you're using the eBus to replace the mediastinoscopy, we must access bilateral mediastinal lymph nodes. And um, also, we we have the opportunity to access hyalur lymph nodes. Regarding the second part of your question, I don't know if you're aware, Stephen, but this equipment costs here in North America about $100,000. In South America, I can give you uh, the numbers, which is exactly uh, the double. It costs $200,000 to get absolutely the same equipment. And unfortunately, as you know, there are many developing countries in South America that just don't have the, the finances to support this. Plus, when you perform those procedures, you need to build them, right? Here, the insurance is covered those procedures. But in many places in South America, there is not a code to build this procedure. So patients have to pay out of the pocket. So it's really a major issue and a a huge opportunity maybe to our association to help those places.
0: Paola, you're you're from Brazil. Um, Brazil, I think of as a a very developed, large country. Is there access to eBus throughout Brazil?
2: So in Brazil specifically, which is a country of 230 million people, I would say that you will find ebus in the largest cities, so mostly the capitals of uh, most of the states, I, I, and I say it again, most of the states, not all the states, and even then, like the city that I come from, which is a Salvador, 3.5 million people, we basically have this equipment in two hospitals. So it's very unfortunate
0: uh martin uh, right now would you consider ebus the standard throughout europe for staging
1: yes indeed i think so so we we have uh condensed this also in our european recommendations which which we are writing together with the esmo that the the endoscopic based staging uh, investigations they are really the standard of mediastinal staging. And and I think uh, it's not available in each hospital, but in the larger hospital, it should be available. And we have made progress with the standardization of the lymph node punction with the number of, of samples that we are taking, with the interpretation of the samples. So I think now this is the standard of mediastinal staging in Europe.
0: Now, we talked about sort of access to equipment. And clearly there's a lot of disparities there, but it's not just the equipment. There's also the skill. Now, Martin, I know many of our colleagues consider you as a clinical trialist, but you are also a pulmonologist. Is there a, a steep learning curve with a procedure like
1: EBUS? So there is a learning curve, whether this is a steep or not so steep learning curve, I think we will see in the future. But there is a clear progress in using this technique in uh, improving the technique. And uh, I, I think this also contributes to the better staging, the better characterization of stage three non-small cell lung cancer. And for treatment planning, this is of uh, paramount importance.
0: Yeah, we, we need this information right away. Paola, uh, today, how would you characterize the role of media stenoscopy?
2: Well, as we just mentioned, we can't forget that our main objective as thoracic oncologists, right? You're a thoracic uh, medonc. I'm a thoracic surgeon. Martin is a thoracic (laughs) (laughs) pulmon. You know, our main role is really to streamline diagnosis to treatment, achieve the best staging that we can so we can sit together and decide what would be the best pathway for that patient. Mediastinoscopy was the standard of care just up to, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, prior to the first multicenter European trial that was published in the chest that literally changed the guidelines. But mediastinoscopy is an excellent tool. You don't have the EBUS, it's okay, my friend, just use the mediastinoscopy. It's been out there since 1970. It gives uh, excellent access to the mediastinum. Um, you, you should biopsy stations four bilateral station seven. You probably can reach the hilum, which I would hilar lymph nodes, which I would say nowadays, it is important prior to making a decision how you're going to manage your patient. So, you know, it, it has more risks. Yes. Maybe the patient will be sleeping in the hospital. Yes. But it will get what we need, which is optimum lung cancer staging.
0: Let's let's move forward. You know, once Paula, we we establish a diagnosis of stage three lung cancer. The next sort of decision we have to make as a group is about resectability. And really this this has to obviously involve a surgeon. Paula, can you walk us through what you're looking at to decide whether a tumor is resectable, but also whether a patient is operable and, and what the difference between those two things is?
2: So first things first. Stratification risk. We need to stratify our patients with PFTs and cardiac evaluation to really say, assess if they are operable. So operability has to do with the risk to perform the procedure. So my patient has limited lung function. He has had a heart attack six months ago, and he needs a pneumonectomy. Do we really want to do this? Right? Right. Um, there is another small detail. I don't want to get into that. If the patient has neoadjuvant and he has a good response, should we really do the pneumonectomy as initially planned or can we do something less? I think that we can discuss that further down. But basically, during the multidisciplinary meeting, uh, when we start discussing the strategies, we really want to stratify the patient according to the resection. Now, if the patient needs a lobectomy or even a bilobectomy, I think that this is pretty straightforward decision with PFTs and cardiovascular assessment. It becomes a little bit more tricky if he needs a pneumonectin. Then the resectability. And what the oncologic thoracic surgeon really needs to try to foresee is that if he's able to achieve an R0 resection, and I believe some people forget some that in 2005, Ramon Ramiporta, on behalf of the ISLC, published on the definition of RZ resection. And it's not just about having negative margins. It's also about the quality of the lymph node dissection you perform during surgery. You need to have either a lobe-guided lymph node dissection or a systematic lymph node dissection. And then... Out of all those lymph nodes that you removed, the uppermost lymph node has to be negative. So just to give you a quick example, let's say I do a right lower lobectomy and I did a station 7, 8, 9 lymph node, which would be a lobe-guided lymph node dissection. Then my final path says that station 7 was positive. Well, unfortunately, this is not an R0 resection according to the definition. This is an R uncertain. Because we don't know if lymph node station four R, which would be the upper uh, level to the seven, is positive or negative, so th- those are um, very important details when you're again sitting down with your multidisciplinary team to plan on the resectability. So resectability has to be uh, directly has to do re- directly with achieving R zero resection.
0: Yeah, extremely important points. You're right. We don't talk about that. Enough, Paula. Um, you know, as we mentioned at the top, there's lots of different types of stage three lung cancer. Let's focus, just for for time's sake, on a stage three with mediastinal and two lymph node involvement. And so, let's say we have a patient with stage three a um, non-small cell lung cancer, and we decide that as a group, this is unresectable; that we are not able to accomplish an R0 resection. Our historic approach has been definitive chemoradiation, preferably given concurrently. Martin when we think about chemo radiation as a strategy what's your preferred chemotherapy in this setting and you know can you speak a little bit to our audience about the toxicity and tolerability of chemo radiation
1: well i think it's uh it's 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 a special treatment so you need to inform your patient you need to inform the family of the patient because you're combining you're combining two treatment modalities the chemotherapy and the radiotherapy so You have to be uh, in respect of of toxicities, which are related to the chemotherapy, but also to the radiotherapy, like pulmonary toxicities or gastrointestinal toxicities, esophagitis, and so on. So with regard of of the chemotherapy schedules, so I am using very frequently two types of of schedules. One is a combination with paclitaxel, carboplatin, paclitaxel. For example, it's usable for both histologies. It has the advantage that you can use a weekly schedule of this chemotherapy, which in, in particular in the simultaneous period has an advantage in terms of tolerability. And the other point or the other schedule, which I'm using very frequently, and I think this is a more European view on, on the chemotherapy, is the combination of cisplatinum vinorebin. Uh, this is a schedule which is quite popular in European countries. It also has the advantage uh, that you can split the cisplatinum to two doses, which has an effect on the tolerability, but it's a cisplatinum-based chemotherapy, and you have to inform your patient of potential side effects that are related to this type of Chemotherapy. So these are the two major schedules that I use for simultaneous chemoradiotherapy, carboplatin paclitaxel, preferably in a weekly schedule, or cisplatinum vinorabine.
0: Chemoradiation is a very challenging treatment, and, and in some cases there can be quite a bit of toxicity. But over the years we've improved our able our ability to, to deliver that therapy safely when we finish chemoradiation. Our new standard is consolidation dervaliumab, the pdl one inhibitor, and that's based on the PACIFIC trial. As we know, that phase three trial um, showed the addition of Dervalumab for a year after radiation significantly improved both progression-free survival and overall survival. And we've recently seen published five-year data on this regimen that show an overall survival hazard ratio of 0.72, an improvement in the five-year PFS rate from 33% to 43%. This is the current standard in the US. Martin, is this the preferred approach
1: in Europe? So, well, the Pacific trial has been, I think, one of the paramount breakthroughs in management of stage 3 non-small cell lung cancer. It has been the only positive consolidation trial so far. And yes, this is also uh, the, the preferred approach in Europe with a little limitation. So the European agency... Only accepted uh, the efficacy data for the patient with PD-L1 expressing tumors. So we do not have an approval for the usage of, of consolidation duvalumab in patients with PD-L1 negative tumors.
0: Now, last question on on the unresectable space. You know, while Pacific is, I think, our, our standard, we're seeking obviously to further improve outcomes, and we're waiting for results on Pacific two and Keynote seven nine nine which is a study you've presented. Martin, can you explain how these approaches are
1: different from Pacific? Well, we have seen in in the Pacific trial that the time to consolidation does have an impact on on the efficacy of the consolidation, which means the shorter the time, the better the impact on overall survival. And this is something which we are investigating in Pacific 2 or Keynote 799, where we are combining the chemoradiotherapy with the immunotherapy as a, let's say, very intensive simultaneous treatment for stage 3 non-small cell lung cancer. And we have done this, in a sickness seeking trial in a phase 2 trial in keynote 799 where we combined chemo radiotherapy with pembrolizumab and we had two principal questions number 1 was the efficacy assessed by response response was quite good it was between 71 and 75% and number 2 was the question of tolerability and we had a one key toxicity which was the treatment related severe pulmonary toxicity. And we defined a cutoff of 10% where we said, well, when we are coming up uh, higher than this 10% pulmonary toxicity rate, we are stopping our, the trial. But we are in the range between 7 and 8%. And we found that this is quite acceptable. So this is a concept which has shown now quite impressive. Two-year overall survival and progression-free survival rates, and we are, we are moving forward into the next phase 3 trials Exploring this new chemoimmune radiotherapy as principal treatment for patients with unresectable stage three, non small lung cancer.
0: And these are important strategies, continuing to to try to improve. I'll need your help interpreting some of these though, because yes. when the results come out, <laughs> it's it's a different strategy. It's a different population that you're starting with. And so not only does your your sort of clock start a little bit earlier, but it, it really is a different group of patients that maybe wouldn't have been included in Pacific. So it gets pretty hard to compare across trials. Uh, but looking forward to those results. Let's go back though and say this was a resectable case. And so if we look at resectable stage three non-small cell lung cancer with mediastinal involvement, so not bulky nodes, but smaller N2 nodes, Paula, we, we know that we favor a multidisciplinary approach. And there's been a lot of recent work in the neoadjuvant space. and you know, before I get your thoughts on that, can you explain why we don't just go directly to surgery? And you know, are there some cases where you will go directly to surgery without neoadjuvant therapy?
2: Well, there is, thank God, a lot of data, <laughs> high-level evidence data against upfront surgery in this setting. However, I must say that the ESMO guidelines do give the option for upfront surgery in patients with single N2 disease after invasive media, well performed, let's say, invasive mediastinal staging if he needs a lobectomy. But NCCN guidelines do not advocate for that. And if I'm not mistaken, the last time the ESMO guidelines were updated was in 2017. And we all know that a lot has happened since then. I would say, though, Stephen, for you, between you and I, nobody's listening to me now. I know that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I am listening, (laughs) but among friends.
2: (laughs) Until we have the results of the new ADORA trial, I am in favor of upfront surgery in single n 2 disease, EGFR-positive patients, just because of what we saw in the ADORA trial. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know if I was clear with my rationale, but to do this, I would perform a mediastinal lymph node dissection. I would confirm that the patient has single N2 disease. The I can achieve an R0 resection. And I know from the biopsies that the patient was EGFR positive, so he doesn't qualify for checkmate. For now, November 2022, I would tend to perform surgery because we don't have the results of the new drug. Now, realistically, prior to 2021, when the checkmate was bio, was uh, published, we surgeons, we fought with our oncologists to beg them to include surgery in the strategy of N2, uh, in the strategy of treatment for N2 patients. Because you know that none of the randomized trial really showed superiority in the surgical arm. So we had to fight for, you know, including our patients. But nowadays, that we are including patients that qualify for the adjuvant treatment into the adjuvant strategy it's a different ballgame right
0: absolutely I, I agree with your approach i think that for egfr mutant we would follow the same approach for others though we, we do favor a neoadjuvant group and i think you're right we we've in academic institutions in particular we have favored sort of incorporation of surgery but hasn't been universal it's also been a really hard space to do trials right the the trimodality intergroup 0139 study took 6 plus years and didn't even yeah. completely accrue it's yeah. very challenging yeah.
2: but you're going to touch on that right because back then we would wait until overall survival data which yes. it's changing
0: it is changing a lot of things are changing um you know martin in cases where we do go to surgery first you know maybe where mediastinal node involvement is only recognized after surgery due in, to in paula's you know,
1: patients <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, no,
0: never, never. But, you know, if, um, you know, incidental nodes or even, you know, the E-Bus and mediastinoscopy don't have 100% sensitivity. And so sometimes we'll see a case um, slip through even with proper staging. But in many cases, if staging is maybe not completely perha- uh, perhaps done, when we do see a stage 3A that's had surgery, we know that the risk of relapse is extremely high and we do recommend adjuvant therapy. We know from many phase three trials decades ago that cisplatin-based chemotherapy offers a modest but significant survival advantage, probably on the order of about a 5% absolute increase in five-year survival. There have been some new regimens, though, in the adjuvant setting, and, and Paula brought it up. Let's talk about the ADORA study. Uh, this is a study that showed three years of daily adjuvant osimertinib, for patients with a resected EGFR mutant non-small cell lung cancer, significantly improved disease-free survival. At the update at ESMO 2022, we saw that the DFS hazard ratio for 3A was 0.20. That's remarkable. This is now an FDA-approved regimen. Martin, yes or no? Is this the standard of care for resected EGFR mutant non-small cell lung cancer?
1: So I give you an absolute yes. It's standard okay. of care. The problem is we need to know that there is an EGFR receptor mutation. And 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 this is the problem of, of daily life that the patient is resected. He's going back to his oncologist or GP or whatever. And we really need to get the signal of the EGFR receptor mutation in order to being able to offer him the therapy of adjuvant osimertinib.
0: Mm. You know, Paola, you touched a little bit on this, and this is a debate amongst all of our colleagues. From your
1: standpoint, you
0: know, we know the Profound improvement in disease-free survival. Overall survival still is a question mark. Is DFS um, a meaningful endpoint in this early stage setting, or is overall survival the only endpoint that matters for a resectable lung cancer?
2: DFS is a meaningful, meaningful endpoint. It's a very meaningful endpoint. And we have to keep moving forward, because now we're talking about complete pathologic response Right. So that's also being added as an endpoint, And there is already data correlating complete pathologic or major pathologic response to uh, DFS. So I think that at the end, we'll be able to put together all those dots. We're early in the process, but we need to keep moving forward. You know, we do all this because the mortality of lung cancer is extremely high, right? Because otherwise, we wouldn't be so anxious to shift, continue to shift the needles.
0: Yeah, agreed. And you know, we, we certainly value the, the you know the results from overall survival. But Martin, do you agree? DFS is this a, a meaningful endpoint to use in these adjuvant
1: settings? Absolutely. So uh, we were waiting for some overall survival update at ESMO 2022. Unfortunately, we we didn't see anything. But disease-free survival means that there are no metastases. Uh, which do have an impact on the quality of life or the prognosis of the patient. And in particular, when you look on special metastases like brain metastases, we have seen an amazing brain DFS Mm -hmm. following the aturan therapy with osimetinib. So this is a relevant and absolutely meaningful endpoint.
2: But not only that, Martin, right? Remember in the previous, I always say it like that, in the previous era, because in my mind, we're living in a new era. The previous era, most of those patients were dead, within two years. Did you ever see a DFS above 60, 70%? The Nadine trial has a DFS of 90% in one year. I mean, this is crazy. We never saw those numbers. We need to know this is happening. If I know that I'm going to be most likely alive in the next two years, I think that information per se, it's important. You know? Yeah, I,
0: I agree, and that's a good point. You know, survival has been our our long held standard, and some worry that we're lowering our bar a bit. But to your point, Paolo, we're talking about sort of magnitudes of benefit that are much greater than we've seen in the past. We're not talking about a two to three percent improvement in disease free survival. We're talking about you know an eighty percent reduction in the risk of of relapse here, and so these are are tremendous improvements. Um, in targeted therapy. But we've also, you know, we've seen this in immunotherapy. You mentioned, deem uh, in the adjuvant setting, we have atezolizumab, a PD-L1 inhibitor approved based on Empower 010. We have a positive phase three study with pembrolizumab, the PEARLS or Keynote 091 study. Martin, what are your thoughts on the roles of adjuvant immunotherapy?
1: Well, I think this has been the first uh, trials reading out showing a um, clear efficacy for uh, disease-free survival, but also I think in terms of overall survival for adjuvant immunotherapy, for me, the more conclusive trial is really the Empower O 10 uh, because there we have seen this correlation between the effect on disease-free survival and overall survival to the pd one expression. And as expected, the largest effect was seen in the patients with a high pd one expression on the tumor cells. And this is now the indicating Uh, which we have got in Europe that we may offer patients after resection and adjuvant immunotherapy with artisulizumab in case when we do see a high PD-1 expression at the tumor cells. And this makes completely sense. And this is something which we also have integrated in our clinical practice. The problem is that this immunotherapy is approved after chemotherapy. And in reality, I would say approximately 50% of our patients really do receive an adjuvant chemotherapy. So we are missing a lot of patients for coming to this point of adjuvant immunotherapy.
0: Yeah, there, there's an ongoing NCI study of adjuvant chemoimmunotherapy. We'll see the results of, of that trial. But I think our approach is very similar. In the US, uh, to clarify, atezolizumab is approved for PDL1 one And so is an option for pdl one low here. Uh, in the U.S., as you'd expect, though, the degree of benefit for pd one low, not quite as high as pd one high, where that hazard ratio was about 0.43, in the low about 0.87. A bit better if you took out EGFR and ALK, but it is currently an option here. Um, I think you both hinted on the earlier uh, use of immunotherapy and how that's improving outcomes, and that's really in the neoadjuvant setting based on Checkmate 816. Now, this is a phase three study that showed the addition of the PD-1 inhibitor nivolumab to neoadjuvant chemotherapy led to a significant improvement in pathologic complete response. It was 2% with chemotherapy alone, 24% with nivolumab plus chemotherapy after only three doses. That did translate to an improvement in event-free survival. We saw similar improvements in the randomized Spanish study, the DEEM 2 study. Paula, is neoadjuvant chemoimmuno for EGFR, alcohol wild type, is that the current standard of care?
2: Yes, thank God. Yes, <laughs> definitely. Yes,
0: Martin, has this approach been embraced at your institution as well?
1: Hopefully, definitely yes. Next year. So currently, uh, we we only can use the new the chemoimmunotherapy in clinical trials. It's not approved, but we are expecting to get the European approval by the beginning of next year.
0: Now, you know, th- these were phenomenal results, and we have a whole bunch of studies coming forward in the coming year as well. Paula, from your standpoint, how does neoadjuvant therapy, maybe in particular neoadjuvant immunotherapy, impact surgery?
2: So if we talk just about the, the technical aspect of the surgery, right? So it is a challenge, and y- you can see from the data from the Checkmate that uh, about 60% of the patients were done open. Right. Uh, I'm guessing in the three institutions of all of us, most of our patients are in general done minimally invasive. That's the reality throughout the academic institutions worldwide. But these in the trial were done mostly open. And the reason is because there is this new layer of inflammation and thickness that really adds another layer of um, difficulty. Plus the lymph nodes, they become more and more adhesive to the lung hilum, either the artery, the vein, or the bronchus, or all the above. So it, it does require an experienced surgeon. Um, the surgery is performed, don't get me wrong. We didn't see any major uh, complications, unacceptable complications, related to the procedure. But it, I would say that if you're starting to do them, you want to do if you're a young surgeon, you want to do with a senior surgeon near you. If you already have, you know, performed a new adjuvant resection in the era of chemo and radiation, it's a little bit similar to them. I love it. I, I don't know. <laughs> and I do it minimal invasive for now. <laughs>
0: you know, when I saw the, um, when I saw Dr. Jonathan Spicer present some of the, the surgical outcomes and really that the, the- Almost all the surgical outcomes were better in the experimental arm than the control arm. I, I was a li- little surprised at first. I thought Look, this is going to lead to longer surgeries, more complications. We saw that it was the opposite: that the interventional arm, that the immunotherapy, had less complications, shorter OR times. And what one of my surgeons explained to me is, "Well, if you have less cancer, then sometimes the surgery is more straightforward."
2: Right? Yep, I I would totally agree with that, and and that relates a little bit to what I alluded previously. I mean, Stephen, if we were together in a tumor board meeting and the patient had this huge tumor tr- crossing the fissure, let's say, upper lobe to lower lobe, and we knew that was most probably a pneumonectomy, but then you treated the patient and now he has a you know three centimeter tumor in the left upper lobe, why would I do the pneumonectomy? Would you agree with that? Or do you think I we should do what we initially thought needed?
0: Oh, I don't know if I'll ever agree with pneumonectomy on that side. So <laughs> I I agree with less surgery. And you know, this is a whole other area of of research. I mean, right now, to be clear, checkmate One 16 our patients are determined to be resectable or unresectable at the beginning before we start therapy. But the next step would be: can we convert a borderline unresectable or just an unresectable tumor into a resectable? And I think that possibilities really are are, are endless. Now, Paolo, one one thing that surgeons and and patients will will tell us, you know, patients are a little worried about losing a window for for surgery. They say, well, if we start neoadjuvant therapy, if it doesn't work, if the cancer spreads or grows, you know, will we have lost the window for surgery, and and will we have done, you know, would that be a mistake? Would we have done a disservice there? How do, how do you respond to something like that?
2: Well, everything is about chance, right? If you look mm-hmm. at the data from the CheckMate. Uh, In the intervention arm, I I believe it was something between fifteen and seventeen percent of the patients didn't go to surgery. Several reasons: toxicity, progression of disease, the patient didn't want to go to surgery. So it's it's about chance, and we always focus on the likelihood of the benefit to the patient. And for now. There is a high likelihood that this will benefit the patient, and that we will be able to perform surgery between four and six weeks. So I'm all for it. I do support my patients on that decision if I think that they're fit for surgery and they're oncologically uh, good candidates.
0: Yeah, com- completely agree with your thoughts there. And you know, I think that what we'll often say is, you know, if a cancer were to progress during neoadjuvant therapy or were to spread, that's probably a cancer that had already spread that may be surgery wouldn't have been the the best initial move, but that can be sort of a difficult situation. You know, if we're talking about the integration of immunotherapy here, as both of you mentioned, this really applies more to EGFR and ALK wild type lung cancers. And, you know, for neoadjuvant and adjuvant strategies, that means we need to know the mutational status of the cancer. You know, at the very least EGFR and ALK, maybe more. That means biomarker testing must now move into earlier stages and so I'd love to hear from both of you here, you know, after surgery, this is not a major issue, right? Testing can occur on the resected tumor. We have plenty of tissue. We have time during recovery, during chemotherapy to wait for those results. It's a little more complicated though, in the neoadjuvant setting, if maybe someone only has fine needle aspirates from an EBUS, Martin, can you talk uh, about your approach to testing in the neoadjuvant setting?
1: So I think this is a very important question. And, and this will trigger a lot of changes also in our diagnostic pathways. So currently, as you said, uh, we are waiting for the resection to get the full tumor sample. Now we have to do this uh, before the operation, which means we have to talk to our molecular pathologist to, to implement something like a fast track for the most frequent uh, oncogenic alterations. We are currently in the process to to implement this, but this will completely change our life. I think uh, as 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 Pana mentioned, we are more looking on on the locally advanced tumours where we also do have the access to tissue and and we can do very good molecular testing also based on on EBUS material, cytologic material. But uh, if we only have a very distinct small tumour. Again, I think I would consider to send this patient for resection first and then to look for the molecular profile. But this neoadjuvant molecular testing will change our testing or diagnostic pathways. Yeah, it's challenging because it's a space where
0: the advances in liquid biopsy probably haven't caught up yet because these may not be shedding or detectable there. Um, Paula, is your approach similar? Are there specific challenges to testing in that neoadjuvant space?
2: Um. No, not really, but, you know, I'm always looking at the worldwide picture, right? And and the reality is that I, I can tell you from uh, uh, Texas down, I mean, as you get into Mexico and go down to <laughs> Chile, it is a challenge to get molecular analysis. You know, some cities don't have access to the test and they have to send it to main capitals, I mean, we are privileged. I work at the Brigham. This is the Harvard setting. It, you know, I'm part of the probably 5% of the community that has easy access to this. I'm more concerned about the how we're going to make those changes a reality in countries like Brazil, Colombia, Argentina, Chile, Mexico, and so forth. Here, I can tell you that most of the cases are discussed in the multidisciplinary meeting that we have every Monday morning. So, right there, we we call and we say, okay, those patients need molecular. Um, Most of the patients are seen by Donna Farber oncologists. So, again, top notch specialties, uh, 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 I'm sorry, uh, professionals. But, you know, we're blessed to be in this setting. I'm concerned with the rest of the world.
0: You're right. This is probably an area where disparities can widen further because testing in the stage four setting, where it's absolutely critical and has been critical for many years, is still you know not available to to all of our patients. And in the neoadjuvant setting, where there are more challenges, um, those disparities widen. Uh, in addition, in the neoadjuvant setting, you know we don't have as much time to to wait. For results, we we certainly can't wait for months to get testing done, um, and someone that may be able to go to surgery. Paula, what do you think an acceptable time is to wait for for results in the neoadjuvant setting?
2: For the molecular,
0: yeah, a, Two days,
2: a yeah, a week <laughs> top, yeah. yeah. I mean, we get uh, PDL one overnight. It's it's the the uh, EGFR that sometimes can take a, a day or two, you know, more.
0: So it's going to be really challenging, right, to to get this everywhere in the world where it needs to be. Um, but that's yep. sort of what yep. we have to do. Yep. Um, you know, Martin, it's, it's important as, as both of you have highlighted, because it's really a decision point to go down the immunotherapy route or the targeted therapy route. When we talk about targeted therapy, we're talking about Adora and EGFR. What about other alterations? Now, how would you approach a uh, resected stage three, a lung cancer with high PDL one expression, but also with a RET fusion,
1: which of those would trump? Well, this is an excellent question, and I do not have a good answer for this. So uh, I, I think I would be strongly encouraged to, to use a targeted therapy in, in that situation. The problem is, uh, I think we need some more data. So so preferably, I would look out for some, some clinical trials to investigate these important questions. And there are a couple of trials out, a couple of platform trials investigating several targeted opportunities in the perioperative setting or at least to have some, uh, let's say, um, um, repositories to, to have some documentations about these patients. But um, I think this is something where we need more information if every targeted therapy is comparable to the other. And I would be a bit hesitatious just to go for a targeted therapy in this at setting without any supporting data.
0: Yeah, fair enough. I mean, we do need to wait for data. We will have some data in that setting. But in the meantime, without data, would you use immunotherapy? If, if since targeted therapy is not approved, there we don't have data. We have high pd one Would you pursue
1: immunotherapy here? Well, it's the same situation that we had with Pacific, uh, yeah. when when we said, well, we, we do not have the data on on all oncogenic alteration. Personally, I would discuss this with his patients, but I would uh, attempt to offer him also the immunotherapy in that event setting.
0: And Paula, we're we're talking about planning adjuvant therapies, but we have to remember that patients are recovering from thoracic surgery. Uh, just to put it in reference, how long does it take for a patient to recover from from thoracic surgery?
2: So these are patients that did not receive new adjuvant, like right, right, yeah, yeah. So in general, patients will be discharged home in North America between the third and the fifth day post-op. And I would say in, you know, according to the literature and our own experience, really what limits patient is postoperative pain. Would you agree with that, Stephen, when you see our patients in clinic? I would agree. Yes. So it's it's pain. And then, you know, how much pain limits the patient? I mean, I can tell you me, if I have pain, I don't want chemotherapy. I mean, why, you know, (laughs) why am I going to do that to myself? So I totally understand them. I think that surgeons have to keep uh, working hard to perform the intervention with the least possible um, pain complications. There there are things that we can do, preemptive analgesia. Uh, Some people still use epidural. I'm not against epidural analgesia, but I do think that it adds length of stay in the hospital. I personally like to do intercostal nerve blocks prior to the procedure. And then at the end of the procedure, then I will keep my patients for two to three days with anti-inflammatory, something like tortol, and then we'll send them home with Tylenol and um, opioids if they need. I would say the majority of the patients, when I see them first follow up in the clinic 14 days after the surgery are off any medication, the absolute majority. But the data shows that up to 5% of the patients will still develop chronic pain, even if he had a minimally invasive procedure. And up to 20 to 30% of the patients have some pain that requires medication. So it's, you know, it's something that we really have to work on.
0: I've been sort of I think it's been mm-hmm. remarkable how quickly patients can recover from a minimally yeah, invasive surgery yeah. Um, compared yeah. to days in the past. Now, Paula, though you qualified at the beginning in North America, so I, I assume that it's different in other parts of the world.
2: It's it's not different. I you know I'm so proud of my South American background. The rate of adoption minimally invasive thoracic surgery in South America was huge. Mm-hmm. I remember I was moving uh, from Brazil to Canada. And already in Brazil, we were using minimal invasive techniques uh, for lobectomies uh, much more than Canada. Now you know the challenge is that unfortunately down there, there are, you know people don't publish, don't do studies, so we don't see that data. But I know you trust me; <laughs> I, do. <laughs> I don't have a, a, a bad reputation. And uh, Brazil, it's impressive. And now the same, the the rate of adoption of robotic surgery and so forth. So they're very forward with minimally invasive. I would say Mexico, Colombia, Brazil, Argentina, and now Chile is picking up.
0: Yeah, Wonderful. Good to hear. Martin, uh, is there any role for post-operative radiation therapy for stage 3 lung cancer?
1: Well, this really has changed after the lung Art trial where we, we had some new information about the adjuvant radiation of, of N2 disease. Uh, I think some years ago, there were a couple of centers in Europe uh, with, with a post-operative radiation of N2 disease. Now we are discussing this really with the radiotherapists case by case. And there are some situations where indeed we would recommend a post-operative radiation, but this is only in individual patients where we have some uh, very large lymph nodes touching the resection margins or some very special situations. So I would not give a general recommendation for postoperative radiation in resected non-small cell lung cancer.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I don't think there's ever been a study that's changed our practice overnight, you know, because yeah, you know, our use of port had really been based on, you know, some subset data with a lot of biases built into them. This first prospective study with no OS benefit, even though there are some allowance for, you know, differences in radiation technique to us that changed practice as soon as um, Dr. Lipashu presented those data. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I think there's, as listeners are getting the, the sense, this is a very complex disease state. You know, for me, one of the the more refreshing parts of the past few years, seeing these um, perioperative studies read out is that we're now involving you know, surgeons in the studies, Um, not just medical oncologists and surgeons are key stakeholders. And really the studies are better, I think, because of their involvement. Uh, And that happens really at the local level too. All of these cases have to be discussed in the multidisciplinary tumor board. Uh, Paula, are all cases discussed at tumor board at your hospital? And, you know, do you think the same is true worldwide?
2: In my hospital, I would say the absolute majority You know, some of us work in uh, like the Brigham setting. We have the main ship, which is the Brigham, but then we have 14 affiliated networks. So I I can't, I don't think all patients, but I would definitely think the majority of patients. In South America, we have been working so hard to promote multidisciplinary um, groups to be, you know, the forefront leaders to take care of all patients with lung cancer i am very much engaged in several cities in brazil to just help them i've been there you know you have to convince people to stop using chat messaging right yeah <laughs> and, uh, whatever whatsapp or facetime no just you know sit down and discuss those cases so it's a it's it's a struggle in some places but we need to keep pushing for that
0: yeah, agreed. It's it is hard um, because everyone has different schedules. Sometimes by design, and you know, uh, to have everyone align those schedules, you know, we, we can do it if it's worthwhile. It just takes a little time to change.
2: Well, the, also don't forget, Stephen, I mean, some of you guys are privileged that you can say, okay, I'm going to do lung cancer and neuro or head and neck. Right. But right. many places, the med onc he does from, I don't know, head to toe. Yeah, And then uh, what are you going to do every day at tumor
0: board? Right. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. You know, we're available. The virtual option helps a little bit. It's not available everywhere, but even still, there are only so many hours in the day. And, you know, surgeons, you know, sometimes surgeons operate at multiple places. They have busy schedules and uh, medical oncologists, like you mentioned, they they can't attend a tumor board for every disease type. It's not practical. So there are a lot of challenges uh, to, to developing this, but certainly stage three, I think, Warrants different perspectives from from the key stakeholders, Martin. What about what about your hospital in Germany? Uh, you know, the tumor board there is it similar throughout Europe?
1: Yeah, I think so. We we have a very strict recommendation in 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 Europe, also for the tumor boards. And I know in particular in Germany we have this. We call them uh, lung cancer centers. They are approved by by the German Cancer Society, and we have very strict rules that really we have to discuss every patient in a multidisciplinary tumor board. Uh, I don't know whether this is feasible in each European country, but the majority of patients are discussed in this multidisciplinary boards. And I think this is also for the sake of the patient because uh, you need to look on on the different perspectives of, of the treating partners of the patients.
0: Yeah, this is a space that is evolving so rapidly, and we're gonna have a lot more data in the coming year or two with a lot of phase three studies to read out. Martin, you know, what does the future hold for stage three
1: lung cancer? What are you excited about? Well, the the question is, and 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 I think we we need to differentiate our expectations. Number one is the surgery. We have the new perioperative opportunities. Uh, that, that enables surgery in a couple of patients. And we haven't seen this before. The other thing is the intensity of, of the multimodality treatment. There, I expect also some improvement over time. And the last one is uh, the implementation of new markers. So we have heard something about the pathological response, which is a very important factor. And I think also the cell-free DNA of the tumor will be a guiding factor for the management of stage three. So this is something where we are just getting a taste of the importance of this marker. But this will teach us a lot of new treatment avenues that, that we can develop for our stage three patients in the future.
0: Yeah, absolutely agree. Exciting evolution. Paolo, what else can we look forward to seeing for stage three non-small cell lung cancer in the years to come?
2: So this is what I say to my colleagues. It's like three, two, one, reset your brain, open your mind, discuss all patients in multidisciplinary tumor boards, use more and more invasive mediastinal staging techniques to biopsy lymph nodes, not only from stations N2, but also from stations N1. Above all, rule out N3 disease because there is no role for surgery in that setting for now. now. And I am very, very much in favor of discussing single N2, multiple N2, and bulky N2 disease to be offered neoadjuvant um, treatment following, of course, the recommendations of the checkmate 816 trial with molecular analysis, excluding patients with EGFR, ALK, ROS, and, and then assessing the recyclability of the disease.
0: Yeah. I mean, what what progress just in, in a couple of years. Uh, it has been so valuable to hear from both of you on this topic. I, I could go on forever, but we're at time and I want to be respectful of that. I'm really glad the field is moving forward in large part due to both of your efforts, uh, Martin, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today, and for always leading the way.
1: Thank you, uh, thank you for this great discussion. So we are on the way.
0: <laughs> we are indeed. And Paula, thank you for all your insights today, and for all the work you do. It has been just wonderful learning from you today.
2: Thank you, Stephen. It's a true honor to discuss this subject with you, also a leader in the field, along with Martin. And I'm so happy that ISLC has this special eye worldwide and, um, you know, to help everybody that treats lung cancer throughout the world. So thank you for having me.
0: Oh, Thank you. And thanks to everyone for listening to Lung Cancer Considered, the official IASLC podcast. We hope that you'll tune in regularly to give us a listen. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Considered. You can find all our podcasts on our website, www.iaslc.org, in our newsroom or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues.